Welcome to the Conscious Clinician Podcast. We have honest conversations about the triumphs and challenges of pelvic health physical therapy. Each week, we bring you inspiration and practical tips to thrive in your work. And now, here's your hosts, Dr. Monica Stefanovich and Dr. Sammy Steele. Welcome back to the Conscious Clinician Podcast, everyone. Hey, Monica. Hey, Sammy. Today, we wanted to talk about telehealth. This is an area that a lot of us may have had new exposure to during the pandemic. Monica and I have been treating on telehealth in various capacities since the pandemic began. So we both had experience in this realm, and we've had some interesting observations about how telehealth affects our interaction with our patients. And there are certain things that I think we can do to make that interaction go a little smoother, to make the session feel like it's a little more effective. So we wanted to talk through some of those aspects today. Yeah, Sammy, I've been doing telehealth since March. We both started March of last year, but I have been 100% telehealth since that time. So a year and a half now of purely telehealth care. And it's a little crazy to remember that at one point I was in the clinic touching people and doing different types of treatments and to see how my practice has changed now. And the first difference in communication that comes up for me is sort of privacy slash preparing your space. Because in the clinic, you have a dedicated room as a pelvic PT. You bring them to that private space, you close the door, you both know that you're the only people there. If someone wants to come in, they need to knock. When you're at home, it's really important that you take just as much time to prepare a private space with your patients. I have seen patients join from very public places in their house where there's family members walking in and out behind them. And in those cases, they don't want to share as much. So sometimes Mm -hmm. asking them, is there a space where you can close the door and maybe talk more privately? That may help. Some people have very small homes or the walls are very thin and so they're just not comfortable because someone may be able to hear them anywhere they go. For the most part, I'll say people are pretty respectful of having a private space, but as providers, we also need to have a private space. I have seen physical therapists through my time observing, mentoring, etc. on telehealth where they've got the door open to the room behind them and you see someone walking back and forth or you hear someone in the background. As much as you can, you need to try to eliminate that. You need to find a space where the patient knows that there's nothing around you in the sense that there's no open doors, there's no open spaces, there's not somewhere where someone is just going to walk by that they didn't expect. If someone needs to come in, if you have kids that knock on the door, I think all of us are empathetic to that to some extent. But as much as you can, finding a quiet space in your house and a dedicated space to telehealth. What's in the view behind you? Like, it's so important that before your visit, you get comfortable with your space and you look at what is visible when you're on camera, right? What's the lighting like? Are you sitting with a window directly behind you? That is the number one biggest thing you cannot do. You cannot sit with a window behind (laughs) you because your face becomes incredibly dark. The exposure is off. And so they can't see your face and they see this bright screen of white behind you and 
we can't build great rapport when we can't see someone. We're such visual creatures and telehealth. That's really the only sense that we get to interact with apart from hearing. So they need to be able to see you. You need to find good lighting. Maybe that's putting a lamp on a a desk or a table or facing a window. That's actually the best thing you can do is to have a window in front of you and then your camera and then you. That always provides the prettiest lighting too. Like whoever you are, you will genuinely look better with a window in front of you. Definitely not behind you. If it has to be behind you, draw curtains and use artificial light. So that was all of the tips I could think of in terms of making your space look good. And it is so important that we do it. Otherwise, like I know when I'm on video and someone's overexposed and I can't see their face, I'm just like squinting the whole time or I become disinterested because I can't see them at all. So I'm going to look at something else. Yeah, those are great tips. I think that it's so important to create something that looks clean and professional because you don't want that to be the focus. Really, you want the focus to be on the patient and the interaction that you have with them. So 100% agree with those tips. I know with the pandemic, a lot of us have been working from home and have been treating telehealth from home. And when you're in that space, you are in your own space, right? You have your art on the walls or your cute bedspread in the background, whatever. But there also is a certain aspect of we want it to be relatively neutral, at least in my mind. If we've got a bunch of posters of bands in the wall behind us or something that's kind of distracting, like I've noticed that when I'm on an appointment with somebody and they have something like that in the background, I notice it more. And I kind of feel like the time is more to be focused on the patient. So Personally, when I was treating in telehealth, I would take my picture frame down from the wall. There's a little hook that I could unhook it down from. And it just made my space feel like a little more neutral. And so it was more of that dedicated workspace. And if I really wanted to, I could kind of make it my own again afterwards. But that's a challenge, I think, for all of us treating in our homes, for sure. Yeah, I think that speaks to how much you want to show the patient of your own home. And for some people that I've worked with, like colleagues, they have mentioned how challenging it is, how they don't want the patient to have more glimpse into their personal life. So similar to you, you know, they remove all personal artifacts. And I would say that's an individual choice. For me, I like having, I have this little gallery wall behind me and I like putting things on there. I believe (laughs) to me that it's not too cluttering. And that's the biggest thing for me is not to have clutter around. Like I don't want people to see that I have junk all over my floors or half of my DIY project laying there, but I do want them to see some expression of me. So two sides of the same coin, there's no right answer here. It's probably something for you to sit and think about because in the clinic, you don't make that choice usually as much, right? You might have a little pelvic health R or a little something, but it's usually not just an entire space filled with all your personal belongings, like even if you do own the clinic. So have that same approach to whatever space you're working with. Like what would you be comfortable with them seeing and what's around you? 
And I think the key word there too would be a curated space, right? So Mm. you're putting things behind you that you've chosen to display to the patient. So you're like, okay, I'm comfortable with them seeing this little flower display or some cute little decorative object. Or, you know, if I can share, Monica has her diplomas behind her. So it looks really... it looks really cute the way she has it set up, but also professional and something that I'm, I'm sure you feel comfortable with your patients seeing versus something that might be really personal or like a photograph of you and your family or something like that. That may not be the most appropriate thing, but everyone's going to be a little different, like you said. So I think you have to know that it's visible and make a conscious choice about what you want on display. The other thing that I think finally with preparing your space and just kind of a presentation aspect is also just your personal presentation. I think that preparing yourself for an interaction with a patient serves two purposes. First, if you comb your hair and put on a nice shirt and like are ready for work, I think that it does portray to the patient that you care and that you're showing up in a professional way. And then the second thing is that I felt like when I was treating on telehealth, I mean, It was such a weird time, at least to the beginning of the pandemic, and you're not really leaving your house as much as you used to, and you're not having that dynamic where you walk into your workspace. And so the act of putting on professional clothing for me, of doing my hair and my makeup, helped me feel like I was in work mode and ready to be in that part of the day. And it was more of a mental transition. So I felt like that was really beneficial for me, but it also helped me feel like I was portraying myself professionally for my patient. Yep. We got to create that separation if you're working from home a lot. You know, some of us listening to this might be doing telehealth, but even still from a clinic where you see one or two patients throughout your day, but you're still in an office. And so these initial tips aren't necessarily applying to you apart from the window. Still don't sit with a window behind (laughs) you. This idea of mentally preparing yourself for work makes me think of the topic of how do we care for ourselves when we're Mm. in this kind of a space, right? I really struggled with the telehealth stuff from home. I did not like not having that separation between work life and home life. There was something about getting in my car and going to work that helped me have some space between it. And so when I was treating fully from home, I really felt like it was bleeding over into my life. So that was a tough thing for me. And I think that the most important thing that I learned during that time is that I needed to have a separate space. And now I I get that not everyone has like a full separate office in their house. That may not be what we all have. But even in my living room, like there was a specific side of the table that I would sit at. And that would be like my designated workspace. When I was working, my husband was also at work. So I was at home alone in the house. I had a white wall behind me. But when I was not at work, I would not sit on that side of the table. Like that was a no-go. That was work zone. And so it helped me at least have a little bit of distance from it. But I still struggled a lot, I think, just having it up in your space. So I I think it's um, really amazing to see how you've worked over this last year and a half fully on telehealth from your house. I think that's a pretty amazing challenge to have taken on. (laughs) Yeah, it's been very interesting. Part of it was that we decided to move to Austin. And so I'm still with Agile Physical Therapy, but I'm treating all California-based patients from Austin, Texas. And That separation of work and home life, I'd say, is a practice. It doesn't necessarily look the same every day, though having a structure, like you mentioned, is really helpful. Having a place where you sit, like I only work with patients from my desk. 
Now, I also like to go sit outside if sometimes I need to document or I'm taking a meeting to give myself variety. And I would say that's okay too, but I'm never going to treat my patients from my couch. I'm never going to sit in the recliner that I might be sending an email from and see my patient from there. So that is very consistent. And that definitely puts me in that mode of like, okay, I'm about to see a patient right now. And some self-care tips also is that it, it gets tiring to see yourself on camera. And it's actually distracting to see yourself on camera because you're like, wow, I look like that. Or, you know, what the heck is my hair doing right now? <laughs> so what I love to do is the moment I start up my Zoom session with a patient, I right click on myself and click hide self view. And that is the best feature I think that Zoom ever invented because the patient still sees me. So it's not me turning off my camera, but it's taking away that window where I see myself. And you can restore it if you need to see yourself because you're demonstrating something, for example. But having that closed, I participate so much better. I'm so much less distracted. Rather than looking at myself when I'm talking, I can look at the camera or I can scan the video of the patient. Or maybe, you know, if I'm on a call with 12 other PTs, I can be looking at them rather than looking at myself talking to them. So look at your software, see if it has that feature, because that is so, so helpful. Or you could always, if you don't have that feature, you could try to minimize the screen. And usually when you minimize that window, it will only highlight whoever is talking. Mm -hmm. Or you might be able to pin someone to the screen, which then places the focus just on them. So it might be called different things. But if you take some time to look at the frequently asked questions on whatever product you're using, you will probably find something to that effect. In my experience, too, when I was at Agile for my residency, I was working for the Sutter branch, and they had a really specific program that they used that was not Zoom or Google Meet or anything like that, and we weren't able to hide ourselves. I literally put a Post-it over myself. (laughs) (laughs) Low-tech solution. Slap a Post-it on your screen. It's not the most pretty solution, but it worked for me in the same way. I have the same exact issue that you described, so there's always a way. I love it. That's awesome. So now that we've talked about preparing our space, preparing ourselves, creating a dedicated space to work with our patients, we probably want to address some of the bigger elephants in the room, which are building rapport and actually working with a patient for the exam and the treatment. And rapport building is definitely different over video. You lose out on all of the downtime where you would just have a random conversation with them. Like when you walk back to the space together and you Mm -hmm. might typically say, how's your day? You know, what have you been up to? What did you do last weekend? You can definitely have that. And I still make a very pointed effort to start with some opener like that when I hop on the video call. But you don't have all of the downtime where the patient might be moving around or putting their shoes back on. And so they ask you some question or something. It is different. And one of the benefits I found is that with that reduction in the fluff time, I'm usually done with them earlier. 
So what might have been like a 40-minute session is more like a 30-minute session because there's no walking in and out. There's no getting undressed, getting dressed again. And that's been a really nice perk for me is to have that time to care for myself, to go to the bathroom, to finish a note, to step outside. But it does affect rapport, I think, slightly. I think it depends on each person. Some people are also uncomfortable on video or have a strong preference towards in-person care. If that's the case, they will honestly do better with in-person care. So if someone is always telling you that they want to be in-person or they're really skeptical of how this works, I might give it a session or two, but I will offer them a referral to in-person. And I've had probably at least a handful, probably two handfuls of people that were really appreciative to just go in person. For the most part, they'll know that they don't even want to start with virtual care. So it hasn't been as many patients as I expected because people are warned that when they come see me or some of the other virtual PTs at Agile, it's only virtual for this one specific team we're on. So I think a lot of people will self-select out of it. But if you're in a setting where like they have the option of both and you can do some type of hybrid model, then read them and look for that enthusiastic consent for virtual care. And if it's not there, if you're getting that hesitation, if they're skeptical of it, then honestly transition them to in-person, whether it's with you or someone else. Yeah, I think that's so true because It's almost like an aspect of the nocebo effect where if they don't think that this is going to be an effective intervention for them, it's probably not going to be an effective intervention for them. I've had so many people when I was treating full-time telehealth that were like, I don't know, this doesn't really seem like it's going to work. Isn't this supposed to be like physical therapy? And I just felt like those people didn't really engage that much and didn't seem that invested in it. And that's okay. But I just, I think it's helpful to know that up front and then if there is an option to do in person, don't waste your time with telehealth with this person that's already telling you that they don't believe in it and that they're against it. So I I think that's a a great idea if you have the option just to send them on over to in person. Yeah. And their rapport will be different. I can think of a, a number of people right now, like of those that I mentioned, and it always felt like I could never quite do what was right for them. But I think that was me reading that they were skeptical, that they Mm. were not fully bought in. So that might be a warning sign to you is if you're getting that, you might ask them, you know, what do you expect from physical therapy? And they may open up and tell you exactly that I expect hands-on treatment or shouldn't you be able to put your hands on me and assess this and you can educate but if they're asking that question with a certain tone of voice to me it says (laughs) they're not really interested in my answer they're more so telling me this is what I expect yeah yeah for sure I think in addition to all of the factors that you've discussed with building rapport I also just feel like there's a really big limitation in those unspoken body language type interactions that we typically have when we're interacting with somebody in person, face-to-face. That is a really tough thing. I mean, I think that there's so much to be said for posture on camera, angling yourself towards the camera, looking directly into the camera once in a while to facilitate more of that in-person interaction. 
Yeah, with body language, we lose the full person view. So you can only see what's on the camera. You don't see the tapping foot of the person who's highly anxious, or you may notice them fidgeting. I don't think we lose it 100%, but I think you lose whatever isn't in focus, right? I've definitely still seen people who never look at the camera and the screen for the entire session, and I think yeah, if we were in person, they probably wouldn't have made any eye contact with me. So it will translate, but you may not get the full perspective in some ways. So keep that in mind, you know, and trust your gut. If something is feeling off about the way that you two interact, you may not know the answer by the time you're done working with the patient, but I would consider that and ask yourself, is there something I can do to build the rapport or is this like this person not interacting back with me? Because you can't take full responsibility for how the interaction goes. They're also choosing to show up. So what we see on camera will affect us and sometimes we can't see everything on camera. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing to be mindful of in our interactions, you know, like you say, you can't fix every single thing with that dynamic. If somebody is truly uncomfortable on camera, that's an aspect of this care that you're not going to be able to fix 100%. But I have noticed in myself that I'm also a little less likely to make more frequent empathetic statements or encouraging statements to patients, things like that. For example, if somebody's exercising, I'm trying to give them frequent feedback on how they're doing in person. So, oh yeah, that was a really good rep. Yep, I would get your hip a little higher. You know, I'm kind of talking, not continuously, but I'm talking frequently throughout that interaction in a way that I maybe wouldn't on telehealth. I find that there's a little bit more dead space in what I'm saying. And so I think what that tends to lead to is we have a little less of a connection because I'm not giving those kind of validating empathetic statements as frequently throughout the session. And there also tends to be a little bit of a a disconnect when we're two humans interacting over video. And so if somebody tells me something that's painful or embarrassing or hard for them or something that I can see is bringing up some emotion, I really try to pause and give that the attention that it deserves in a way that I I don't have to remind myself as consciously to do in person because it comes naturally. But I think on video, it doesn't come as naturally. So I really have to take the time to dial in on that empathy stuff on video and try to make that person feel heard and increase the rapport in that way. That's interesting. I I would say that I haven't noticed as much of that personally. Like I still find that I can give people comments on what they're doing and so I'm I'm curious about that. I would say that for the empathy piece, you can't do the physical touch you might normally. You might normally put your hand on someone's back and not say anything if they're crying, or you might just pass them a tissue and let them know it's okay to take their time. So I think for the empathy building, I've noticed that piece can be more challenging, but I try to do it verbally and say like, really take your time. You know, it's a normal to have these feelings come up. It's okay to sit with your feelings. Like, let's take a deep breath together. And so I try to facilitate something where we can still connect in that way. But I, and that could just be a difference of like how long we've been practicing too, right? Like having done a few months versus a year and a half in it. I I find that I have that 
ability to still sound like myself, but I do think that takes time because we're usually so self-conscious on video when we first start. And my guess is that maybe you felt like less of those statements because you were still trying to figure out how do I do a pelvic exam over video, right? And like, how do I teach someone without touching them and putting my hands on them? And so I almost imagine it was like a function of trying to get your workflows down, like documenting while being on a video feels very different than documenting with a person right there in the room with you. You know, I think I could clarify a little bit more too. I certainly think there was some aspect of that. But when I'm thinking about this empathy and rapport building as well, I'll give an example. If I bring somebody back in person, we're chatting on the way back into the office, they sit down and then they start sharing with me that something really hard happened to them over the last couple of weeks or that they were having a lot more pain than usual or they tried something and it didn't go well. And in that instance, you know, normally I'm sitting down and I'm kind of typing the subjective. I'm trying to angle my body towards the patient and look at them, but I also have the computer next to me and I'm, I'm on the computer as well. And when that stuff comes up, I typically will turn fully towards them, even if I have a slight angle away. I take my hands away from the computer. I make direct eye contact with them. I might rest my hands in my lap and then wait for them to finish talking and give an empathetic statement. And I think that when we're online, we miss so much of that nonverbal stuff that all we have left is that empathetic statement. And I think that's where the challenge comes in for me, if that's a better clarification to what I said. Yeah. So like those those nonverbals. That- Absolutely. Yeah. And so yeah. I find that we have to rely so much on the verbal. I, I don't know how true all of those statistics are that however much percentage of our communication is nonverbal. I don't even know what the percentage is, but I think we've all heard that most communication is nonverbal. I, I truly think that there is a lot to that. And we miss so much between the lines on video. I can definitely agree that, you know, you lose some aspect of it for sure. And for some people, that physical touch is like more important. And that kind of segues into when you lose physical touch, what does that mean? I think it varies person to person and what they're coming in for, you know, especially people with acute pain or those who are not as open to physical touch. This is a great modality. The other part that I've really liked over video is that I do less touching of people and I help them touch themselves more. Hmm. And so by helping them touch themselves more, I actually think I can do a better service of teaching them or helping them to see rather safety in their own body rather than me being the person that touches that is giving them the input that is assessing their tone we get to take away all of those layers. And instead, I see them when they're pushing on themselves really anxiously and really hard and digging in. And I can say, slow down, go softer. How does that feel if you just touch it lightly, right? Or what area is tender? And so I'm using it in a way to help them or invite them to try to experience their body in a different way. And I think that's the side of telehealth that we usually think is missing, that patients also think is missing, that can be turned into a real strength rather than something that makes it less effective. Because the research on pelvic telehealth has actually been a little surprising for 
uh, project I'm working on, I've explored what's out there. And they found that people get better with telehealth, even when that telehealth isn't one-to-one with a person. It's something they do with an app, or it's something that they get like asynchronous support for, meaning it's email with a provider instead of being live over video with someone else. And so those results are pretty shocking because I think we assume if we're not in person, it's not going to be as effective. The feedback from those asynchronous studies for patients was that they wanted a provider they could trust and talk with. So if you're providing virtual care over video or even live over the telephone in some cases, you really are still meeting that need for them to build connection with one provider, to have their story heard, to feel like they're a partner in their own healthcare. And that's the beauty of telehealth. I've been really excited to see how it challenges me to let go of the times where I might lean on some physical treatment and I don't have that ability, but if I can challenge myself and think about what this patient needs, many times it's actually turned out better. Now, not every single time. Yes, you do need to refer people out, but I would challenge you to consider how the lack of physical touch on your end could actually help the patient improve their own autonomy and their own efficacy, their ability to affect their own change, right? Because if you're not massaging their vagina for four to five to eight visits, then the question is, one, do they really need that? Are there other ways to go about it? And two, if they really do need the manual therapy, how can we help them become more comfortable with it? Because especially for like pelvic pain diagnoses, like like vaginismus, I think of. The person who wants you to massage their vagina because they won't massage their vagina, that's actually not providing top-notch care to me because I think we're missing the, the point. The point is they don't feel comfortable with their body. They're giving up ownership and control and autonomy to someone else of their body. The whole issue with them not feeling safe is that blockage in the pelvic floor muscles, right? That tightening, that protective sensation. So how can we help that person work towards it, right? And yeah. I think we got to wrestle with some of these questions. I think I think the telehealth frustration and the assumption that telehealth isn't as effective is really doing our field a disservice in some ways because we're not wrestling with the questions of like, who really needs that in-person care versus how can we change our approach to help people in a different way? And just because you're not touching someone doesn't mean it's not physical therapy. It's all about movement and the musculoskeletal system. And you're still doing so, so much of that. So that was all of my thoughts about physical touch and how it can help and how the lack of it can help. And I don't have a perfect answer of when and why not to touch someone or to refer them. I just have some ideas that I'm continually learning from my patients, what works, when it works, and how we have to go about it. That's great points. I would want to add to that and say as well that 
the inability to touch somebody on telehealth, not only is it, to your point, increasing their self-efficacy and their comfort in their own body, but I've also had direct feedback from a couple of patients that I've treated in the past who have had some sexual trauma. And they said that being on their own turf at their own house without the looming threat of an exam has helped them to feel more comfortable because they know Mm. it's not on the table. There's no option for you to touch them through the screen. And so that helped them feel a little bit more open and secure in the interaction. So I think there's also that flip side where we can also be a presence in the room that creates some anxiety for a patient. You know, those patients with white coat syndrome or who really negatively anticipate any pelvic exams. Those are the people who might do great with telehealth and who really need that self-efficacy approach where they're working on themselves. So I think there's also that aspect that I've found that I think is really valuable with telehealth and the pelvic health population. Great point, Sammy. Thanks for sharing that. That is so inspiring in some ways to know that people actually benefit from that separation and they feel more comfortable. And if they feel more comfortable, usually we're more effective. It's just that simple. Yep. We've discussed a lot of different aspects of telehealth today beyond just the nitty gritty, how do we do it, but also how do we optimize that patient interaction? So hopefully these tips have helped you. We know that this is a continually developing process for those of us who are not treating telehealth as frequently as maybe Monica might be, but it's a really valuable service to offer. And I I hope that we keep some aspect of it in the future too. I think it's something that it's so patient individualized. I hope in the future people have the option to really choose what they want. Do they want an in-person appointment? Are they going to benefit more from that? Or are they really feeling like they might benefit more from that separation in a telehealth style appointment? So the moral of the story for me, at least, is that if we want to be patient centered, we got to have options and allow people to choose them. That is a great way to wrap it up. I'll say I don't think telehealth is going anywhere. One of the positive things from the pandemic was that it made telehealth widely accessible to the U.S. population in a way that would have taken, I swear, decades to happen otherwise. I think it really propelled us so far into the future in terms of different delivery of healthcare provision. So I'm excited to see how it becomes integrated. I think one of the questions right now is the legislature around how telehealth will be covered, when to decide to cover it, is it covered as much as in-person appointments, you know, and understanding what all the norms are about that. So I think we need to stay on top of it. We need to show support for those bills that might be passing in our states as well to keep telehealth as an option. I find it a very viable option for a lot of people. A lot of people have said to me, if it wasn't virtual, I probably wouldn't be doing it right now. So is it the answer for everyone? Is it the only way to practice? Absolutely not. And having telehealth doesn't threaten your in-person practice. There's 330 million people in the U.S. alone. Let me tell you, we need telehealth PTs. We need in-person PTs. We need acute care PTs. You are not at all threatened because telehealth is coming out there. But what questions could you learn from it that you could even apply to your in-person care? 
even if you don't practice telehealth, I think you could sit with some of this and say, how do I prepare my space? How do I build rapport with this person and ensure their privacy? How could I question when and why I touch people? So lots to think about at the end of this. I am very excited about telehealth, as you can probably tell, very biased towards it, but I think we can learn so much from it in our profession. All right. Well, another fun conversation with you, Sammy. Stay conscious, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Let's keep the conversation going on Instagram at The Conscious Clinician and Facebook backslash The Conscious Clinician. Links are in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and leave a review for the podcast to grow our community. Stay conscious, everyone.